0: Rejoice! We're at the end of Second Thessalonians. So, as I said last week, we'll be going into the Gospel of John eventually here in a couple of weeks. So, you can continue to pray and, and start to read that for yourselves and prepare your hearts for that. But uh, as we turn to uh, Second Thessalonians chapter three, we just want to be reminded of what we've been through the last twenty messages. As we went through first, first Thessalonians, that was several messages a year or so, and then 20 messages here in Second Thessalonians. And I trust you've been edified. I trust that you've been built up as we've walked through together our study of this wonderful epistle of the Apostle Paul. And even though it was a short three chapters, uh, there's a lot in there. Would you agree? There's a lot that we've gone over. Uh, we've described, God's described for us the... Uh, the judgment, the retribution of the wicked who reject the Lord Jesus Christ. He discussed that in chapter 1, verses 6 through 10, and he talked about their eternal destiny, that being hell. Uh, We talked about God's judgment on the sinful world, as we will see it come in the day of the Lord, and that was in chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. And it also, we saw the prediction of the Antichrist, someone who will... Claim to be Christ, but he will actually be everything about him as Antichrist. And we talked about the blasphemous um, desolation that he will bring in the middle of the tribulation as he garners all the support as they go into the tribulation. Everybody thinks he's the savior of the world, and he claims to be so. And then he turns his back on Israel and everyone else and begins to persecute them for another three and a half years during the great tribulation as we know it. And we also understood his ultimate destruction. We don't need to fear Satan. He is a lost foe. He is defeated in every way, and so we need to uh, understand that, that his ultimate destruction at the return of Jesus Christ. And then he warned about wolves in sheep's clothing in chapter 2, and he also in chapter 3 rebuked these disobedient uh, you could call them lazy Christians who are part of the body of Christ who just wanted to stop working because someone sent around a letter saying that they were in the day of the Lord, so they thought, well, we'll just sit around and read our Bibles and do nothing, live off the church. Uh, we don't have to have jobs anymore. It was part of that. It was part of the culture. And we saw what uh, how wrong that is and how God created work for us as something to do. And so we've been up and down throughout this book. It's been kind of an interesting study through both books, back-to-back like this. But we saw one thing in in Thessalonica. This church was a young church. We knew it to be young, made up of young believers. But it was also a pretty well-put-together church. But it wasn't perfect because there is no perfect church. Okay, uh, there just isn't because churches are made up of sinners who are saved by God's grace, and so there's, it's impossible for them to be perfect. And so we've seen highlights where Paul has been praising them, and then other times where he's had to warn them and rebuke them, even. But probably out of all the New Testament churches, the church at Thessalonica probably had most of it together, uh, had it together the most out of all those. But you could almost conclude here as we close down on, on verses 16, 17, and 18, as he concludes his teaching here to these Christians in Thessalonica, you could almost think of it as, boy, you've been on this sea, and it, the, 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 the ocean has been raging all around you, and now Paul has to just calm everything down. Because it's been one thing after the other, would you agree? I mean, we've been talking about all kinds of things. And so it's, this church is strong in, in so many different ways, but they've also had to endure uh, persecution, false doctrine, fear, sin, all these things. And in the main body of, of our text in Second Thessalonians, Paul gave them detailed, you could say, instructions for dealing with all these issues. Uh, But he, he knew that they needed, they couldn't do it on their own, and neither can we. They needed to rely on the Spirit of God. They needed to rely not on their own strength, but on the strength that God provides. And so a lot of times in life, we think we're cruising along pretty good in our Christian life, and then God just has to kind of remind us. He brings something into our life that causes us to realize, wow, I can't do this on my own. Okay? I need the Lord each and every day. We need to be totally dependent upon the Lord. And so he wanted these new believers, because as we said, he couldn't be there for them all the time, so he was sending them warnings and, and encouragement. And after instructing them about Christ's judgment in verses 5 to 10, he, he brings kind of a consolatory word in verse 11 of chapter 1. He said, to this end, we always pray for you that God may make you worthy of his calling. And that implies what? We're not worthy of God's calling. We're not worthy. And then he says, and may fulfill every resolve for good in every work of faith by his power. And Paul is early on in this letter reminding them, you cannot do this on your own. You cannot live the Christian life on your own. It's not meant to be lived on your own. You have to do it through his power. Verse 12, so that the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he instructs him about the coming Christ in judgment, bringing these wicked people to eternal damnation in hell. And then he says, hey, this is why we're praying for you. We, we want you to succeed in this. And then in chapter 2, just to remind you, he gives this big discussion of the day of the Lord and the rise and fall of, of the Antichrist and all these things in verses 1 through 15 of chapter 2. And once again, he exhorts them. He doesn't want to just beat them down, so he, he gives them this word in chapter 2, verse 16 to 17. He says, Now may the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. So he wants them to know that this comfort is dependent upon the grace of God. And it's, it's dependent upon you really relying on God for that and being established in that truth. And then in chapter 3, we, we saw that he, he basically asked the Thessalonians in verses 1 and 2, the beginning there, to pray for an effective ministry and to pray for protection, you could say, from his enemies. But then he instructs them about God's faithfulness. In, in verses 3 and 4. And he continues to teach them. And and so this section here is really closes with a prayer there in verse 5, you could say, may the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. And that was directed really to the Lord, obviously, but he's letting them know he's praying for them. And then in chapter 3, verses six to 15, the last couple weeks, we've been in a series called Do Not Grow Weary in Well-Doing. And and we've been looking at um, the problem which existed in this church. And we said that some of the people didn't want to work. And the principle that uh, affects this problem, the scripture says, if you don't work, guess what? You don't get to eat. Okay. So that was the principle. And then we talked about the practice of other believers toward those with this problem. And it said to avoid them to you know, warn them, but then if they're, if they're continuing in this, you need to uh, avoid them so that they might be shamed back into um, uh, obedient behavior. They're being disobedient in their outlook on work. And then we said the purpose of that is so that they would be shamed to be brought back into fellowship. And now we're kind of at the end of this book, the end of this chapter, and in verse 16, he begins to make a transition. Notice there in verse 16, it says, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. And so Paul is saying, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm getting off my soapbox, but I want to leave them with a good word once again. And so the good word, the encouraging word, is marked by that word now, that transitional uh, word there. He's, he's moving from a command and exhortation to more of a closing his letter, a benediction you would, and and prayer, and it doesn't really consist of a prayer here, it doesn't really, um, he's not not really saying a specific prayer for them, but he's he's more really expressing the desires in his own heart, uh, that they would constantly cry out uh, to the Lord for his blessing. And so he talks here in the first verse here, verse 16, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. And this is basically the point is the peace that is needed. After going through this book, Paul realized that these Thessalonians, as young believers, needed to remind, he needed to remind them about the peace of God that they have. They have. And so this is the, the piece that's really needed in the body of Christ, he's saying. And uh, he knew they were having problems. He knew which areas and everything, because he has already discussed all those. And so there were some disagreements among the folks, it, um, whether or not they are in the day of the Lord, and, and you know, it, it's that way in every church. There's always disagreement with, with folks. And this church had definitely some, some problems. They had some different uh, uh, people were being attacked were being persecuted, you could say, for their faith. They were suffering for their faith. Uh, they had some questions about doctrine, when this day of the Lord is happening, all these things, and we've been through all that. But then he brings up this, this idea of peace. He says, may the Lord of peace himself. Uh, that word peace there really provides for us, the definition would, would be kind of a sense of calm, a sense of calm, tranquility quietness, contentment. You know, did you ever see the commercial for the app, Calm? And they put on the rain, and it's just a clock for like 15 seconds, and you just hear the rain, and you just kind of, ah. It's just calming. It's calming, right? Um, This is what it's speaking of. It's speaking of quietness in your soul, a well-being that comes when, when everything is going well. That's when things are peaceful. But when you stop and think about it, that definition for peace is relatively, uh, even though it's accurate, it's kind of shallow. I don't think necessarily that's the kind of peace that Paul is talking about here. It obviously means that, but I think he's talking more about a supernatural peace, a spiritual peace, that's completely different from a peace that could be uh, had by listening to an app with some rain in your ears. Okay? And so... Uh, this This calm, tranquil feeling that this this sound of rain or the sound of wind or or noise sometimes they use noise, different kinds of noise um, to, to to provide calmness for people um, It can produce that kind of a feeling, but you know what it can also be produced by lies by self deception by unexpected good fortune those all those things are are producers of peace, okay? And so peace really is the absence of of, of trouble, of conflict. Uh, People go to counselors, people take medication, drugs, Uh, some people drink alcohol to give them a calm, some people use biofeedback, all these different things, right? Um, in such peace, the peace that people are seeking with those things is, I'm just here to tell you, it's a fleeting peace. It's a peace that won't last. It's a peace that can be easily destroyed. It just takes one phone call, right, from your employer saying, "Hey, sorry, we can't, we can't pay you anymore. You're without a job. You know, all your peace goes out the window. Or from the doctor saying, hey, you know what, the x-ray had a little more on it than we thought, and sorry to tell you. But, you know, we don't want to hear those things. That shatters that peace that resides within us, and, and a lot of times, the things that can be shattering to this kind of peace is, is the failure, doubt, fear, bitterness, anger, you go down the list, right? But true spiritual peace, true spiritual peace is completely different. It's a different kind of peace. It's different from the superficial. It's different from the, the, the peace that just comes from, from other, you know, humans and and that kind of a peace. It's, it's different. It is a deep, settled confidence that, you know what? No matter what is going on, all is well between my soul and my God. That kind of peace is eternal. You're right. Took the words right out of my mouth. And it's eternal because God is Eternal. Because of his loving, sovereign control over one's life in both time and eternity, nothing happens to us as believers that is outside of God's direct will. Think about that. The good, the bad, the ugly. doesn't matter what it is. And that calm assurance is based on the understanding that, first of all, our sins are forgiven through Christ if we've trusted Christ as our Lord and Savior, if we've looked to the cross, and we've looked at Christ and Christ alone for the forgiveness of our sins, we have our sins forgiven, the Bible says. Think about it. Past, present, and future. They're all forgiven. They're all under the blood of Christ. That gives you a little calm assurance. That should give you some peace. Um, and I think... This blessing that continues is is something that's present. It's something that's ongoing. Uh, It's good, even in the abundance of of trouble. Bad things can happen in our lives as Christians. Don't believe the lie. Well, once you become a Christian, nothing bad happens. Oh, no, no. Sometimes when you become a Christian, you look back and you go, wow, what's going on here, God? Because your life is full of trials and tribulations beyond belief. But you have to remember, wait a minute, this is temporary. This is but a vapor. Heaven lies ahead of me. I am secured. My, my hope is in Christ, in Christ alone. My sins are forgiven. The moment my eyes cl- close from death here on this earth, I will be ushered into the presence of the living God for all of eternity. And nothing of the concerns of this world will even be a thought. And so the peace that God gives... His beloved children as their position, or as their possession, and really it's, it's a privilege. Think of it this way, it has nothing to do with the circumstances of your life. It has nothing to do with the circumstances of your life. And so there's two things here I want you to see. I want you to see the source of this peace, the source of this peace within the body of Christ. Where does this peace come from? Well, he says there in verse 16 that now may the Lord of peace, what, himself give you peace. (laughs) This is a very, very odd wording and phrase in the original language. It doesn't appear anywhere else in Scripture. The Lord of peace himself. It's called what they, they call the emphatic position. Meaning no one else but the Lord is going to bring that peace. He alone is our peace. You're not going to get this peace through a promotion. You're not going to get this peace through winning the lottery. You're not going to get this peace through you know, getting a good report from the doctor or having a wonderful marriage or having wonderful children. No, he is our peace. He's making that very clear. And we need to find unity within the body of Christ um, over the Lord of peace, not over issues that divide. And so he talks about the source of peace, but he also talks about the scope of peace. And we're going to delve down on this a little bit here. But um, the scope of peace, in other words, when is this peace available? At all times in every way. (laughs) Think about that. It's 24-7. What's the... 24 hour fitness center, right? Somebody told me the other day, I said, Yeah, that, you know, I'm thinking of maybe going down there and checking it out, making sure it's clean and stuff before I actually commit. But I, I wanted to go down there because they have a pool and I thought, Well, that, that's good exercise. But I said, Yeah, you know, you can go there anytime because it's open 24 hours. And they said, Oh, and they said, I think the one in, I don't know it's in San Carlos or San Matero, they listed one of them. They said, Well, that one's not open but the name of the place is 24 Hour. I mean, come on. So I don't know if that's true or not, but I've yet to confirm that. But I know the one in River City is, so that was good. But anyway, uh, here God says that this piece is available, what? At all times. In what? In every way. Um, Always, by all means. The simple point is that it's continually available in every circumstance. And, and there is not a, any situation, really, that, that could rise up in our lives where we don't need the peace of God. Amen? That word peace means to bind together. To bind together. That's provided by that calming sensation. But and it, last week I said, you know, a good way to understand words is to look at the opposite. And the opposite of this word, of course, is what? Is... is Is disruption, right? Not peace. So not binding together, but you could say disharmony. Disharmony. Disunity is another word. And so this is where folks are not unified. They're they're conflicted. They're split. They're not together. Um, Pastor MacArthur listed several reasons um, why this happens, but he also gives several characteristics that this peace has. And he says this, he says, first of all, this peace that God is talking about, Paul is talking about here, first of all, he says, it's divine. It's a divine peace. It's not a peace that's going to come from an app on your phone. It's not a peace from, you know, your financial dealings or anything. No, it's a divine peace. It's coming from the Lord of peace himself. And it's God who is this peace, who grants peace to us as his children. And you think about it, peace is at the very nature of God. It's one of his attributes, you could say. Uh, God is at, and at all times, at perfect peace, without any discord within himself, at all. There's no disunity within God. God is never under stress, you could say. God is never worried. He's never anxious. He's never fearful or insecure or unsure or threatened in any way. He is always perfectly calm. He is perfectly tranquil. He was perfectly content in all circumstances. He has that kind of peace. This is the peace that he gives to us as believers. Even his wrath. You say, well, what about his wrath? Doesn't God get angry? Yes, he does. But his wrath is clear. It's controlled. It's calm. It's confident. It's holy. It's holy. Please understand, you can never point your finger at God and say, well, what about this, God? Because when you do that, what are you doing? You're, you're attributing unholy motives to a holy God. You can't do that. And you can apply that to anything. All the injustices in the world. You think of little babies that are born deformed. Little children that deal with things that other children shouldn't, you know, that kids shouldn't have to deal with at that young of age. All these things. And you say, why, God, do you allow this to happen? I don't know. I don't know why. But I can tell you this. I mean, part of the reason things like that happen is because of sin, right? It's not God. You can't put that on God. But could God have prevented something from happening in your life? Yes, he is sovereign. And sometimes, guess what? He doesn't. He allows those tough things to happen, and he he allows them for a purpose. But we can never shake our fist at God and say, how dare you? Because that's attributing unholy motives to a holy God. And if God is perfect, if God is holy, if God is completely righteous and just, There's nothing he can do or even allow to happen that is unjust or unholy. That's a hard thing to understand. But the Bible makes it clear that God the Father is, he's referred to as as the God of peace. It calls here Jesus Christ, the Lord of peace. Um, You could refer to the Trinity, you could refer to the Holy Spirit. Um, Peace is one of the fruit of the Spirit. Okay, it's an aspect of the fruit of the spirit, as in Galatians five twenty two it says. But in Romans fourteen seven it says the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And so there's a sense also here that this Trinity, the character of God, is really um, enveloped in peace—the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so it's a—it's a divine—it's a divine. It's a divine peace. Secondly, it's a peace that's, he writes, it's it's a gift from God, right? If it's divine, the only thing that uh, a a divine gift has to come from a divine God, right? I mean, you can't just make something like this up. So divine peace is a gift from God himself. And that's what he says there. He says, it is his good pleasure to graciously, what, grant you or give you peace. He gives us this peace as a gift. In Numbers 6.26, it says, The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you, what? Peace. He's, he's writing to Israel there. In Psalm 29.11, David said this. He declared, The Lord will bless his people with, what? Peace. Psalm 85.8 says this. God the Lord will speak peace to his people, to his godly ones. Or Isaiah 57, 19, God himself promises peace, peace to him who is far and to him who is near. See, God is concerned that we understand he's giving us a divine peace and he's giving it to us as a gift. That's why in Romans 15, 13, Paul wrote this, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and what? Peace in believing. So peace comes from God. It also comes from the Lord Jesus Christ, you could say. In John, various places, he says, peace, what? I leave with you my peace I give you. He wants us to entertain the thought that we can have this peace in our lives. It's such a big part of the New Testament. Whenever you, you read through Paul's epistles, whether it be First, Second Peter, um, uh, even in, in, with, with, with John when he wrote 2 John, Third John, Jude, um, Revelation, when John wrote Revelation, all these different letters throughout the New Testament, they speak of this kind of a peace. And, and God does not give this kind of a peace to everybody. This kind of spiritual peace is only given to those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. They're his followers. The unbelievers don't have this kind of peace because it's a, it's a feature of our salvation. This this peace comes with our salvation. That's why in Romans fifteen thirteen he says, "Peace in believing, in following Christ." As a matter of fact, Isaiah forty eight twenty two, the prophet boldly he just proclaims this. He says, "There is no peace for the wicked," says the Lord. Think about that. There is no peace. For those who are not part of God's family. The peace that the wicked experience um, is really a false peace. It's not a real peace. Thomas Watson said this, a great Puritan pastor. He said, peace flows from sanctification. But they being unregenerate, the unsaved, have nothing to do with peace. They may have a truce, but no peace. God may forbear the, the wicked a while and stop the roaring of his cannon. But though there will be a, a truce, yet there is no peace. The wicked may have something, listen, which looks like peace. He says, but it is not they may be fearless and stupid, that's his word, not mine, but there is a great difference between stupefied conscience and a pacified conscience. This is the devil's peace. He rocks men in the cradle of security. He cries, peace, peace, when men are on the precipice of hell. The seeming peace a sinner has is not from the knowledge of his happiness but the ignorance of his danger let me say that again the peace that a sinner has is not from the knowledge of his happiness but from the ignorance of his danger in other words he doesn't understand he's on a footstep away from hell he doesn't understand that his sins are unforgiven he will spend all of eternity try to pay for them and so this false piece of the un- unregenerate, he, he lists here several things. He says, first of all, it's a piece of presumption. It's a piece of, of presumption. It's based on pride, not truth. It's uh, thinking that you're basically pretty good before God. That, that's floating around today. And, um, you know, that's not true. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that righteousness and peace go together. You can't have peace if you're not righteous before a holy God. Um, Isaiah 32, 17 says, The works of righteousness will be peace. In Deuteronomy 29, 19, listen to this. He writes, um, and this is basically in the context, you can look it up, but it's talking about a foolish, deceived man. And here's what the foolish, deceived man says. I have peace, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart they try to convince themselves that they have peace. Watson said this, Thomas Watson he says you may as well suck health out of poison as peace out of sin. <laughs> In other words, you know the chances of getting something healthy out of poison is not very good. The chances of getting peace out of sin is even worse. And so False peace, not only you know, it can't survive the tests of life. It's a presumption; it can't survive the tests of life. And and when this kind of peace that people possess today outside of Christ, you look at them and they got all their houses and their money and all, and you think, oh, so, they must sleep so well at night. No, don't, don't fool yourselves. Okay, First um, Thessalonians, remember in chapter five, verse twenty-three. It says, while they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly, like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. See, their kind of peace, this false peace, cannot survive the tests of life. It can't. Well, the third element of this divine peace that's a gift that God gives us is that it's continually available. It's continually available to us. I mean, this is what what, what Paul is is telling us there in 2 Thessalonians. He says, at at all times, in every way. This isn't something that can elude us. This isn't something that God puts on the highest shelf and says, you've got to jump or you've got to get a ladder, and maybe only those that succeed will get this kind of peace. No. This is a peace that's available to all those who have put their faith or trust in Christ. But even though it's available, and even though we can experience at any time, in any situation, you have to understand it can be interrupted. This kind of peace can be disturbed. Okay? And there are certain situations um, when you're... It can be disturbed by, by sinful behavior. As a believer, you should not have this peace in your heart. If you're continuing to live in a way that's dishonoring to the Lord. Why? Because the the Bible says the Holy Spirit will convict you of your sins, will cause you to turn back to Christ, will cause you to, to what? Confess your sins. To desire to turn from your sins. Sometimes it can be disturbed, this peace can be disturbed not just by sins, but from doubt. You get away from reading your Bible. You begin to feel some fear from your circumstances, maybe anxiety in your life. All those kind of things can get destroy uh, the false peace of the unredeemed, but it can also interrupt the divine peace that God gives us because that's the way he's created it. Well, how, do you inter- how can this interrupted peace, if you're in this interrupted state, how can it be restored once again, MacArthur points out three a couple things here. He says, first of all, by trusting God, <laughs> seems kind of pretty basic, doesn't it? By trusting God, the psalmist said in forty two eleven, Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why so downcast? We sing that song, right? Why so downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God. All right, hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him, the help of my countenance and my God. So sometimes we're not trusting the Lord. Um, another way it can be restored is when we forfeit and and confess any unrepentant sin or any disobedience in our lives. Uh, God promised Israel in Leviticus 26, verses 3 and 6, If you walk in my statutes, if you keep my commandments, God is telling his people, so as to carry them out, I will also grant peace in the land. I will grant peace in the land. In Romans 2.10, Paul wrote to the church of Rome there, glory and honor and peace to everyone who does what good, he says. Not to those who do bad, but to those who do good. Thomas Watson, once again, to quote him, he says, if you would have peace, he's talking to believers, if you would have peace, then you need to make war with sin. If you would have peace, you need to make war with sin. A good book on understanding sin, we've taken the men through it several times, but it's called The Mortification of Sin. The Mortification of Sin. And it teaches you how to mortify sin. Not just control it, but mortify it. And it teaches in that book that, you know what, we, we take sin and we, we think of sin as something we do. Right? We it's something we do. Oh, I sinned, I did this, I did that. And... The writer tells us, no, um, it's not what we do. It's who we are. It makes up every fabric of our being. That's why God says, you know what? You can't remake yourself into a Christian. You can't you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You can't just come to church more and hopefully it'll rub off. No. What does the, the Bible say? Jesus says, he, he said it to Nicodemus, a, a righteous, uh, you know, in his own thinking, man. He said, you have to be what? You have to be born again. And we've lost the the meaning of that that phrase. You know, it's been used so much, we just kind of, yeah, yeah, born again people. No, what does that mean, though? It means you can't just clean yourself up. God has to completely recreate you in Christ. That's why the Bible says you have to die to yourself and come to Christ. You have to lay down your life, sacrifice yourself on the altar and follow Christ and trust in his sacrifice for you. And then you will be born again. You will be transformed. You will be made a new person in Christ because you can't clean yourself up good enough. So you have to trust in God for this peace to be restored. You have to forfeit and confess your sins with repentance and obedience. And then thirdly, Peace may be restored by accepting God's chastening. This is interesting. Sometimes we will not accept the chastening of God. God, some, for some reason, only maybe known to God himself. Maybe you don't even know. But for some reason, God is allowing things in your lives, and you're just going, whoa, wait a minute. I thought this was supposed to be happy, happy, happy time in Jesus. This doesn't sound too happy. It doesn't feel too happy, Lord. In Job chapter 5, he speaks of this in verse 17. He says, behold, how happy is the man, listen, whom God reproves. Are you happy when God reproves you? He says, so do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. Are you happy when God disciplines you? Listen, for he inflicts pain and gives relief. He wounds and his hands also heal. From six troubles he will deliver you. Even in seven, evil will not touch you. In famine he will redeem you from death. See the extremes? And in war from the power of the sword, you will be hidden from the scourge of the tongue and will not be afraid of violence when it comes. You will laugh at violence, Job writes, and famine, and you will not be afraid of wild beasts. For you will be in league with the stones of the field, and the beasts of the field will be at peace with you. You will know that your tent is secure, for you will visit your abode and fear no loss. This is from the lips of someone who lost everything. Just like we were singing earlier, blessed be the name of the Lord, right? He gives and takes away. Right, He gives and takes away. So this peace can be restored when we just admit, okay, God, yes, I was wrong, and I am accepting your chastening. Help me through this time, rather than trying to kick against it. And then fourthly, peace may be restored by walking in the Spirit. Galatians 5.22. Peace is an element of the fruit of the Spirit, and it's important that we walk in that peace. Uh, peace can also be restored to the heart by avoiding what we call legalism today, having a very judgmental attitude, um, having a very, uh, you know, legalism basically is applying um, demands for obedience on your preference and not the Scriptures. Okay? So, you know, someone who would prefer a certain look you know well they shouldn't have that earring you know in their ear or they're through their nose or whatever you know but well okay i I get it but chapter verse chapter verse Or you can apply that to any behavior, really, or any any kind of a situation like that. So we need to avoid legalism. And then the sixth thing he points out there, he says that peace has been interrupted. We need to pray that the God of peace and the Prince of Peace will restore it. That seems like quite obvious, right? Because it can only come from him. And so we need to turn back to him. Well, moving on, the fourth element of this divine peace that God continually gives, it's a divine peace, it's a gift from God, and it's, it's available at, at, at all times here. But the fourth element is that the redeemed, uh, that he gives it to redeemed, this piece, is that it exists in every circumstance. It exists in every circumstance. Uh, we're going to sing a song at the close of the service He who began a good work in you. And that's taken out of Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. He who began a good work in you, in believers, right, he will perfect it until the day of Christ. Are we perfect as believers? No. But is God working on us? Yes. So you have to stop and you have to ask yourself, is this my understanding of this peace? May the Lord of the peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. Do you have peace at all times and in every way? In every circumstances? Or does life have a way of disrupting your peace? Because if it does, it's not not this divine peace we're talking about. It's peace based on circumstances. But this peace exists in every circumstance. Think about it who I mean Ken brought it up this morning when he was reading the scripture, right? Paul's in 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 prison. Not a nice place to be, especially back then, right? Um, and what is he talking about? He's talking about peace. He's talking about the joy of the Lord, rejoicing in the Lord. It's like, wait a minute, if you lost your mind, Paul. I mean, think about it. If someone came here today and arrested you for no reason and said, you're going to prison, you're going to San Quentin, pal. I mean, what would you, I don't know about you, but I would be kicking against that. I'd be, whoa, wait, wait, wait a minute. You know, this isn't right. This is unjust. This is wrong. This is, and I would, I would find every way possible to fight against that. And Paul is saying, hey, you know what? This is what God has for you. And he understood this is what God had for him. All he had done is preach the gospel. And beloved, I think that God is getting, he's preparing churches for such a time as this. I think our freedom in this country is very short lived. We've enjoyed it for many years, but I think it's coming slowly to an end. I think there will be time. When government officials will begin to speak out against conservative Bible-believing churches that aren't going along with the crowd, that are unwilling to say, well, okay, we'll, we'll accept homosexuality, we'll accept abortion, we'll accept all these things that the world is dishing out, and we won't speak up against it. And their answer will be, well, if you do, you will be fine. And ultimately the fine will be, you know what, churches, you continue this up. Because I don't think churches are just going to cower and and not do this. Some will. But I think those that are really based on the the Bible and based on on biblical truth are not going to just, you know, say, okay, we can't teach about this anymore. No, they're going to double down. Why? Because they believe that God is true. And they believe his message is true. And if that offends people, well, so be it. But you know what? You don't compromise truth just... So someone cannot be offended. But I think the government's going to come to a point in time where they say, all right, you're going to persist in this, that's fine. We're not going to put you in prison, but you know what? Your tax exempt status is gone. Think about that. Think how that would how that would affect nonprofit organizations across this nation. There's a lot of churches that have property, free and clear, that's paid for. But you know what? They lose their tax exempt status. They're not going to be able to pay for the taxes that the state is going to put on them. What are they going to have to do? They're going to have to sell their property. I think the church, the true church, will ultimately be gathered back to homes. I think buildings will be a thing of the past. We won't be meeting in buildings anymore. We'll be meeting in homes. Um, When that will happen, only the Lord knows. But see, it's this kind of peace that God... Paul is telling them, "Look, you've been through all this stuff. You, all this stuff is coming down the pipe, the pike and everything is, you know, this Antichrist, the day of the Lord, you know what? But there is a Lord of peace, and He will give you his peace. You're not going to get peace from your circumstances in life." And so he says, "The Lord be with you all there in verse 16. He wants them to understand that there's a presence of the Lord that comes along with that peace? I was reading a lot this week on that that little phrase, and some people said, why does Paul say that? It's like he's praying the Lord be with them. Isn't the Lord everywhere? Well, yeah, he is, right? He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. There's there's nowhere the Lord is not. But sometimes you can not sense his presence, frankly, even as a believer, right? And so you you don't sense that in that peace, brings his presence, and I think that's really what he's, he's, he's talking about here, and that's why he's, he's dialing down here at the end, and he's kind of, it, it seems like he's, he's really just kind of calming the air, and he's saying, hey, just remember the Lord of peace himself will give you peace at all times in every way. He wants them to understand that this peace, no matter what circumstances they were in, no matter what they're experiencing, this can settle their confidence, that this can give them an unshakable joy amidst the storms of life. And that's really what he desires of us as well. And then here in the closing, verses 17 and 18, he basically, his final words, he, he mentions two things. First of all, he, he recognizes the recognition of his letters here. He says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This kind of seems to indicate that Paul didn't write the rest of the letter. I mean, he wrote it, he dictated it, but he had i mean—that's somebody who, who would write, like a secretary, you would call it, uh, who would um, write for him as he gave the words, as the Holy Spirit gave him utterance to, to speak the words. The person would write it down, whether it was Timothy, Titus, whoever, we don't know. But this part, he says, hey, at the end here, I'm going to try to get this out. I'm going to write this with my own hand. And he says, this is a sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. So it's something that Paul put into practice. And you wonder, well, why, why is he doing this? Well, you remember what we read in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, right? Verse 2, he says, he tells them, don't be too quickly... Uh, uh, quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by, and he lists off several things, by a spirit or by a spoken word. In other words, he's saying, don't listen to things that are not coming from me or the Lord. And there's going to be a lot of different things, from the, whether it's a spirit, whether it's a spoken word, and then he says, or a letter seeming to be from us. And this is what we talked about to the effect that the day of the Lord has already come. And he says, don't anybody let, don't let anybody deceive you in any way. And so Paul here is dialing down, and he's saying, hey, just so you know, this, this letter is authentic. That other one is floating around, there's not, whatever it was saying about the day of the Lord that had already come and caused all this disruption in the church, and they claim that it was written by Paul when it wasn't, but here he's writing it with his own, his own handwriting, and so he, he writes it with his own hand, and he's, he's basically saying, this is evidence by the way it's, it's being written. Um. Apparently, Paul had some issue with his eyes, it seems. we it doesn't really tell us that, but we can imply this. It's implied in the epistle to the Corinthians. It says they would have plucked out their eyes if they could help him. <laughs> so he has some kind of eye disease. Maybe that was the thorn in the flesh that he was dealing with. We don't know that he asked God to take away from him. But he mentions that he's, he's writing here at the end, and he's writing with giant um, uh, symbols, you know, it's not just like normal writing, it's big. He says, look at how big I'm writing, because he couldn't see. And so that's why somebody else had to write all this, this for him. And he wrote with large and large letters, and people would recognize it. Oh yeah, this is Paul's signature. This is the way he, he closes his, his epistles. And so uh, actually in, in Galatians chapter 6, verse 11, he says the same thing. Paul says, he says, in verse 11, he says, See with what large letters I am writing to you, with my own hand. So there was a lot of people that were trying to uh, steal credit or to, to uh, imitate the Apostle Paul back in his day, and were writing things that were disingenuous of the, the true gospel, and saying, oh, this is what the Apostle Paul said on this matter, when it wasn't. And so we see here this idea of the recognition of his letters, and then he, he basically speaks. He gets back into the, the, the closing here. It's kind of a little interruption there. He says, the Lord be with you all. And then you could jump right down to verse 18. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. This is the resource. The grace of God is this resource that we all need. He says, may the, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Um, not just the recognition of this letter, but this grace. Do you know that God gives us grace? And it's the, the grace of God is all we need. We need the grace of God. We don't need anything more. His, his grace is sufficient for us in every circumstance. And even when the Thessalonians were suffering and being persecuted for their faith and going through all these tribulations... What does Paul write to them? He says, God's grace is sufficient. God's not cut off guard by your circumstances. Do you understand that it's the grace of God that brings us salvation? We don't bring salvation to ourselves. We don't find God. We, don't, you know, we, we aren't out there uh, finally making ourselves holy enough to be, be saved by God. No. God's grace saves us. It's his grace that supplies everything we need. It's his grace that will finally, ultimately, take us home. For by grace you have been saved, what? Through faith. It's not even your faith that saves you. It's grace that saves you. And even the faith you have is given to you by God himself. And so we need to recognize here at the end, and Paul wants them to understand this clearly, that, you know what, as, as tumultuous as life can be, as hard as life can be, as we look at, at life through a lens sometimes of, of unfair things and unjust things, and this peace of God should really uh, surpass all of it. That's why in Philippians Paul says, you know what, don't be worrying, don't be anxious. Right? But come to God in prayer, supplication. And then he says, in the peace of God, will what? We'll will, will surpass everything. It, it will give you an understanding that you won't have otherwise. That's why believers sometimes, when they're in situations of turmoil and, 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 and tribulation and everything, and you look at the way they're reacting, if they sense this peace, if they have this peace, if they're truly saved, if they understand they're not going to be stressing out. They're not going to be... I'm not saying we don't have stress in our lives. We do. We all do. But I'm saying, given a, a dire circumstance, somehow God gives this peace to us in those situations. I'm sure we've all seen that or have experienced that time after time after time. And you look back and you're like, yeah, why didn't I freak out? It's because the peace of God is present in your life through Christ. So that's how he closes. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Well, we're done. That's it. That's it. Well, let's stand and we'll pray and have one last song. And uh, we have fellowship time across the way. And I ask that if you join us, that uh, you'd be willing to come over and enjoy some good food. We have some uh, chili and some other things going on over there. So... But let's bow in a word of prayer as the worship team comes. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that sometimes as we've gone through these epistles, Lord, it's been hard. Some of the things are not easy to grasp. They're not easy to understand. But we know that it is the word of God, and we know that it was given um, for our admonition. It's given for our learning. But sometimes there are situations in our own midst that are hard to deal with. Sometimes even people in our own lives, sometimes even family, relatives in our own immediate family. And sometimes we need the grace and the wisdom of God. And so we want to make sure that our desire is to maintain those relationships, to restore, to apply healing to those relationships. Uh, Keep us, Lord, from a judgmental, critical, legalistic mindset. Help us, Lord, to reflect your kindness, your goodness, uh, the sweetness of our blessed Lord. But at the same time, Lord, help us to stand up for what's right. Help us not to compromise. Uh, And I pray, Lord, that you'll continue to work in our our midst. And really, we, we look to you and your word to lead us and guide us. And Father, we pray that if there's any here today who's yet to put their faith, their trust in Christ, Lord, I pray that today might be the day they cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me from my sin. I I want to experience the forgiveness that Jesus freely gives. And this is a complete gift of grace by you, Lord. It's nothing I deserve. If we were to be honest, we all deserve hell. We deserve eternal punishment for our sins, but God has provided a way through Christ that our sins could be forgiven, that his wrath would be satisfied. And So, Lord, we pray that if there's any here who have yet to put their faith or trust in you, that they would cry out to you today, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Show me my need of a Savior. And for us believers, I just pray, if there's anything that we need to acknowledge to you that we need to seek forgiveness for, Lord, I pray that we would do that even now in the quietness of this moment. Maybe we're feeling overwhelmed. Maybe we're feeling discouraged. Maybe we're feeling faint-hearted. Lord, I ask that you would lift our hearts. Lord, know that you will help us to know that you will use us for your good works here in this place. Lord, may we look forward to our fellowship time afterwards, pray that you would help us to uh, enjoy our conversation and our fellowship and the food. Pray you'd bless it to our bodies. And we pray for a good work week coming up, Lord, that you would uh, just help us to uh, keep in mind that you desire uh, your church to continually seek your word and your prayers and, and just continue to seek that, persist in that relationship with you. And so, Father, we look forward to a full week. And, Lord, we ask that you would just bless our time now. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. All God's people said, amen.